New York City, February 20th, 1939. Pandemonium breaks out on Manhattan's 8th Avenue, just outside Madison Square Garden. More than 50,000 angry protesters are held in check by an army of New York City's mounted police. Inside the arena, 20,000 supporters of a pro-fascist organization, the German-American Bund, gather for a celebratory rally. We have to fight for our rights. Our German-American Bund was created for this purpose particularly. The rally speeches that night looked to celebrate the Boone's political doctrine, a twisted blend of American patriotism, white supremacism, and fervent anti-Semitism. The keynote speaker and leader of the Boone is a German-American fascist on the rise named Fritz Julius Kuhn. Kuhn was at his zenith here. He wanted this to be his triumph of the will. The event is limited to ticket holders only. But that night, a lanky 26-year-old plumber from New York City is sneaking inside the crowded arena. A Brooklyn-born Jew, Isidore Greenbaum can't believe what he sees. Enormous American flags paraded side by side with Nazi swastikas. Men dressed in stormtrooper uniforms just like those worn by the SS in Germany. And boys playing a drumbeat resembling those played by the Hitler Youth. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Fritz Kuhn. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, American patriots. As Fritz Kuhn takes to the stage, Isidore Greenbaum makes a decision that borders on suicidal. He's going to confront the American Fuhrer. And he told me, if this guy says one more thing, I'm going to jump up there and punch him in the face. This is the Star Spangled Fascism podcast, The Fuhrer and the Plumber, Part 1. I'm historian Bradley W. Hart, author of the award-winning book, Hitler's American Friends. In this podcast, we're examining fascist leaders and movements that have emerged here in the United States over the past century. We'll look at what fueled their authoritarian ambitions, the supporters who flocked to them, and the Americans who stood in their way. In the next two episodes, we'll be taking a deep dive into the story of perhaps the most prominent fascist movement in the pre-World War II US, the German-American Bund and its controversial leader, Fritz Julius Kuhn. You've probably never heard of Fritz Kuhn until now. But at one time, he was a household name in communities across the United States. And he was one of the most feared men in the country. Fritz Kuhn was born in Munich in 1896. Like so many men in his generation, he fought in the Great War, World War I, on the German side. He fought as a gunner, and he ended up winning the Iron Cross for his heroism. After the war, he trained as a chemist and earned the equivalent of a master's degree. But at this point, his seemingly promising career started to go off the rails. One of Kuhn's first jobs was working as a shipping clerk at a clothing establishment just down the street from his father's house. One day, the store owner discovered that shipments were coming up short. At first, he thought this was just a mistake, but then his suspicions turned to the young Fritz Kuhn. Kuhn's father intervened to head off any legal trouble, and he arranged for his son to leave the country. Kuhn and his wife moved to Mexico. Six years later, and two kids later, he moved his family to the U.S., where he got a job as a technician at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Kuhn wasn't much of a looker, 
but he proved to be a bit of a Lothario. I spoke with Kuhn biographer Arnie Bernstein to get a detailed account of this complex man. Despite his thick glasses, his thick German accent, his thick jowls, his thick body, he was a chick magnet and was having a lot of affairs, despite his wife and children, in the broom closets at the Henry Ford Hospital. Kuhn's attentions weren't limited to romantic liaisons, however. He began getting interested in politics. Now, this is not the standard politics of the United States. Kuhn was particularly interested in the unique politics of the German-American community. The vast majority of German-Americans were the descendants of immigrants that came to the U.S. in the 19th century or the early 20th century. But there was another wave of German immigration. These were Germans who had lived through World War I on the German side. Many of the men had, in fact, fought in the war against the United States in some cases. And indeed, many of them brought their politics from Germany to the U.S. with them. And that included people who had been supporters of the early Nazi party. Fritz Kuhn himself had allegedly been involved with Nazism during his time in Munich. Munich, of course, is where the Nazi party had really been founded. So there's some evidence that Kuhn was likely involved in far-right politics well before he came to the United States. In 1935, Kuhn becomes involved with a group called the Friends of the New Germany. Now, what is the New Germany we're talking about here? Remember that in 1933, Adolf Hitler had taken power in Germany, first as Chancellor and later as Führer. Friends of the New Germany was a group composed of German-Americans who wanted to support the changes taking place in Hitler's Germany. There was really no doubt about Friends of the New Germany's ideological focus. There were swastikas at rallies, there were speeches praising Hitler, and there was music that was directly reminiscent of the songs being played at Nazi party rallies. Friends of the New Germany proclaimed that it was not interested in politics. It was simply a German-American cultural organization. But if you'd attended a Friends of the New Germany rally, there wouldn't have been much doubt as to where they stood on the big issues affecting Germany at the time. And so Kuhn becomes a leader in this new organization. He, in fact, becomes the Midwestern leader of the entire group. This is a man who has gone from being effectively a nobody a few years before to becoming a major leader in an organization composed of thousands of people. But Friends of the New Germany, like many extremist groups, was destroyed effectively by its internal divisions. In 1936, Friends of the New Germany dissolves, and a new group, the German-American Bund, steps into the breach. We have no time nor excuse to be idle, so march along with the Bund. The German-American Bund presents itself as an all-American organization. Unlike Friends of the New Germany, there's no reference in its name to being involved with the German government or with Germany itself. It's an organization in theory like so many other cultural heritage organizations in this period. And Fritz Kuhn becomes the leader of this national group. The German-American Bund is a patriotic, law-abiding organization of German-Americans in the United States who uphold the Constitution and the flag of the United States to uh, defend that country and to unite 
determine Americans in a better spirit. Even though this is an organization that presents itself as all-American, they're using the swastika as one of their key emblems. They're flying the German flag at their events, right next to the American flag. This is an organization that is very clearly trying to meld together the principles of national socialism with the ideals of Americanism. The Boone's ideology was the Nazi ideology. They liked what was going on in Germany. They liked what was going on with the Reich. They saw America as a potential for a great fascist state. Kuhn's dream was to be the American Fuhrer. In fact, the title Fuhrer was only supposed to go to Hitler. There could be no other Fuhrer. But Kuhn wanted that title, so he became the Bundesfuhrer, the Bundesfuhrer. The Boone tries to appeal to German-Americans based upon some pretty clear ideological themes. Number one, there's this idea of cultural heritage, that this is about maintaining one's ties to Germany and one's Germanness to some extent. And of course, baked into that, there's an element of white supremacism as well. Much like Adolf Hitler, in fact, the Bund also presents itself as deeply anti-communist. There's interesting references in some of the Boone's propaganda materials to German-Americans having unique experience with the dangers supposedly posed by communists because of Germany's own history. And for people who have grown up in the fractious political environment in Germany, the threat of communism could seem very real. And so, in fact, this anti-communist plank is a very important part of the Boone's platform. One thing we have to remember as well is that there was actually a boycott movement against Nazi Germany in the early 1930s. And the Bund, as a supposed representative of the German-American community, strongly opposed the boycott of German goods. This, in fact, became a key way for Kuhn to try to recruit German-American business owners into the organization and to get their dues. But most importantly of all, the Bund is deeply anti-Semitic. We can't understand the Bund's anti-communism or its politics without understanding its deep-seated hatred of Jews. They didn't want Jews in the government. They didn't want Jews controlling the press. They didn't want Jews controlling America. Anti-Semitic banners were often hung at its events. Anti-Semitic speeches were commonplace. The German-American Bund also proclaimed that labor unions had been taken over by Jews and communists and had to be purged of these influences if they were to properly represent American workers. In the first months of the Bund's existence, membership grows rapidly. In fact, the Bund will have chapters in 42 states. Kuhn at one point claims a membership of more than 200,000 people across the country. Most historians think the number was much lower, perhaps as small as 50 or 60,000 people. But regardless of the actual size of the Bund, growing membership numbers meant increasing financial resources for Fritz Kuhn and his lieutenants. Being a member of the Bund meant paying monthly dues. Being a member of the Bund's elite uniform stormtrooper division cost even more, 75 cents a month for a single man, about $16 today, or 30 cents a month, about $7, for a married man. Plus, you had to buy a Nazi-style uniform for official events that could only be purchased from a Bund-associated store. Going to a Bund meeting itself cost 10 cents even for members, about $1.50 in today's money. That might not seem like a lot, but remember, this is the Great Depression, and there were hundreds of people attending these events. The Bund would take a collection at the end of the event, not unlike a church service, and they'd be selling concessions and beer during the events as well. According to one informant, 
The Boone's Kenosha, Wisconsin headquarters actually had slot machines that members would use when they were hanging out there. The Boone was big business. With tens of thousands of members all across the country, even by conservative estimates, Kuhn was raking in the dough. This is a a fairly large organization that's nationally organized, wearing uniforms, and supposedly answering to a man who presents himself as the future American Fuhrer. But that ambition to become an American Fuhrer is dependent, for Kuhn, on getting the approval of the actual Fuhrer, of Adolf Hitler himself. Now to do this, Kuhn knows that he's going to have to go to Berlin and literally ask Hitler in person for his permission to create a version of the Nazi party in the United States. But fortunately for Kuhn, there's the perfect moment right on the horizon, the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The Berlin Olympics were a huge propaganda coup for the German government. They actually toned down their overt anti-Semitism and asked shop owners to remove anti-Semitic signs from their windows to try to pretend that they were a normal regime. This is, of course, the Olympic Games where Jesse Owens will win gold medals for the United States and humiliate Hitler's racist ideology in front of the world. Owens is ahead. Stunberg and Boltmeyer fighting. Hosendorp challenges Wyckoff. Metcalf comes up. But Owens wins in 10.3. Second, Metcalf America. Third, Hosendorp Holland. But for the Germans, the 1936 Olympics will become a huge victory. There are travelers from all over the world who go to Berlin, and many of them get the impression that things aren't nearly as bad in Nazi Germany as they've read about in the newspapers or heard about on the radio. Kuhn realizes one critical thing about Hitler and the Nazi regime. They're publicity hungry. During the Olympic Games, Hitler will be meeting with dozens of foreign dignitaries. So Kuhn travels to Germany with a Boone delegation. The Boone members wear their uniforms and march down Unter den Linden in the center of Berlin, much as members of the Nazi party have done for years. In preparation for this, Kuhn actually puts on a charitable contribution drive in the U.S., where German-American Boone members make donations to what was called the Winter Help Fund in Germany. This was a common charitable cause that the Nazi party would raise money for every year, and Kuhn thought that he could buy his way into Hitler's good graces by making this charitable contribution. They were able to get a meeting with Hitler. He had no idea who Fritz Kuhn and the German-American Bund were. After Hitler heard their spiel, he said, go back and continue your work. Kuhn thought, this is our blessing. This is our blessing from Hitler. Fritz Kuhn comes back to the U.S. on top of the world. He believes, seemingly, that Hitler has given him permission to create an American version of the Nazi party and that he himself will be its leader. Now Kuhn believes the time is right to take his plans to the next level. He's going to make the Boone a national player in American politics, and he's going to do so by turning to America's youth. The German-American Bund is a patriotic, law-abiding, honor-bound fighting organization of loyal Americans of German extraction, fighting to exterminate Jewish international atheistic Bolshevism, to uphold the constitution on flag of, the, of a clean United States. That's the voice of the would-be American Fuhrer, Fritz Julius Kuhn, describing his membership and the goals of his political organization, the German-American Bund. Kuhn steers his fascist organization to embracing Americanism 
He pairs the U.S. flag with the Nazi flag at rallies. Fritz Kuhn now hopes to begin indoctrinating America's youth with the tenets of Nazism through a series of German-American boond youth camps. There were camps all over the country. There were several in the New York City region. There were several in the upper Midwest. And there were even camps in Washington State and California. On the surface, they looked like any other kind of weekend family retreat. And this was one of the things that the Bund emphasized. We are just like any other organization. We like to get together and gather with our own culture. That's Arnie Bernstein, the author of Swastika Nation, Fritz Kuhn and the Rise and Fall of the German-American Bund. And if you went there on the weekends, it would look like an Oktoberfest. The German Umpapa bands and German ale and singing songs, people dressed in folk costumes. But there was a more sinister side to these things. The really sinister side of the German-American Bund's youth camps was that the children who were taken to these camps were actually indoctrinated into an American version of the Hitler Youth. They were put through hard physical labor. There was rigorous marching. There were military-style drills, physical competitions, and even what some might describe as brainwashing. They were forced to sing songs praising Hitler. They were the future generation of the Bund. They were the future fascists of America. We often forget that the Nazi party in Germany focused much of its attention on young people. The Hitler Youth was, in fact, a compulsory organization for young men just a few years into Hitler's regime. The idea was that these would be the young people who would carry the Nazi revolution to its final fruition, the beginnings of Hitler's supposed thousand-year Reich. Fritz Kuhn had similar ideas. Young people were supposed to be the core of the German-American Boone's future, and that's why he put so much effort into creating these camps. These camps weren't just for young people either. Adults would go to these camps to celebrate German or American holidays. There were frequently political meetings that took place at these camps with parades, with singing, and even VIPs from Nazi Germany itself in attendance. As the Boone's membership increased across the country, there were actually outbursts of local violence between Boone members and Jewish Americans they were victimizing. Even though the Bund remained numerically small in most parts of the country, this was an organization that was significantly feared by people who might become its victims, especially people who were closely watching the violence unfolding in Nazi Germany. The Bund began to attract some unwanted attention and some enemies. The FBI began tracking their growth and reporting back on the group's anti-Semitic and anti-communist rhetoric. And the famed columnist Walter Winchell began particularly targeting Kuhn with some nasty nicknames. He dubbed him Fat Fritz Kuhn, Life's Little Ironist, and Chief of the Ratsies. Unknowingly, Fritz Kuhn and his followers were actually attracting an even more dangerous enemy, the Mafia. People have to remember that the Jewish mob was significant. Uh, Meyer Lansky and his, associate, his childhood friend, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, They didn't like what they were seeing. Lansky's boyhood friend, Lucky Luciano, said, I'd be happy to help you guys with this. And Lansky said, no, thank you, but you're the Italians, we're the Jews. This is our fight. And in fact, Bugsy Siegel ran training camps showing people how to effectively beat up the Nazis. They would go to Bund rallies and they would 
do their thing. They would break bones. They would break heads. They used baseball bats. They used iron pipes that were wrapped in hard rubber. Fritz Kuhn had attracted some powerful enemies for the Bund. Now, in theory, everything the Bund was doing was protected by the U.S. Constitution. Making anti-Semitic remarks and giving hateful speeches is protected by the First Amendment. But Kuhn was facing some serious opposition from other quarters as well. There were infiltrators who got inside the Bund and published unflattering stories about what was going on in the youth camps. There was even the death of a Bund camper that attracted attention on Capitol Hill. Kuhn himself had been summoned to testify before a congressional committee about the supposedly un-American activities taking place in the Boone's organization, a charge that he vehemently denied before Congress. Kuhn was dissatisfied with his overall position. He was no closer to becoming a true American Fuhrer. And in fact, thanks to the criticism of Winchell, he was becoming a laughingstock in some circles. So in February of 1939, Kuhn decides to take his show to the next level. He's going to hold a mass rally in the heart of America's most important political venue, Madison Square Garden, a place where presidents and politicians frequently hold rallies. Now, this event is going to be supposedly a birthday celebration for America's first president, George Washington. But it's going to have the outward appearance of a Nazi party rally. Kuhn is going to claim that George Washington, if he were alive in the 1930s, would be a fascist. And there's a great deal of fear that he's going to unleash a tirade of anti-Semitism that could have real consequences for the city's Jewish community. As awful as the things they were saying, they had every right to say it. And Mayor LaGuardia agreed. He did nothing to stop it because he felt they had that right. They signed a contract with the agreement there would be no anti-Semitic signs, no Nazi flags, and nothing of this sort. Once these contracts were signed, that all went out the window. There were signs saying, keep America Jew-free, a million Bun members by 1940, Nazi banners everywhere. The New York police knew there was going to be a problem because they knew there were going to be protesters. And there were protesters. There were student groups. There were business groups. There were Jewish groups. There were Catholic groups. There were ladies' sewing circle groups. On the night of the event, there will be more protesters than actual attendees. But this, to some extent, is Kuhn's goal. He wants this big moment of provocation and, inevitably, national attention. Before the actual rally kicked off, Boone members marched through the streets of Manhattan as if to announce, now we've arrived, now we've arrived on the big stage. All this controversy caught the attention of a young Jewish plumber named Isidore Greenbaum. I had the privilege of interviewing Greenbaum's grandson, Brett Siciliano, to ask him about Greenbaum's decision to come to the garden that cold February night in 1939. He started seeing the pamphlets, flyers around the the city. He told my grandmother that he was going to the bar. He just made something up because he didn't want her to know because it looked like it could be rough and tough and he just wanted to go check it out. Access to the event was supposed to be confined to 20,000 ticket holders and some key members of the press covering the event. The idea was to keep the crowds of protesters outside the arena. But Isidore Greenbaum did his best to slip past the Boone guards and enter the garden's cheap seats in the upper decks. He said that he, when he walked in, he had to do the, the Hitler sign, and he covered his nose because he said it was too big and he didn't want people to think he was Jewish. Just imagine this scene. 
Behind the stage at Madison Square Garden, there's a massive portrait of George Washington. It's towering above the podium, flanked with both the American flag and Boone symbolism on either side. The American flag literally next to the swastika. It was a packed house. People were excited to be there. There were the places where they normally sold, like, hot dogs and beer. They were selling copies of Mein Kampf, pins with swastikas on them, little flags with swastikas on them. Uniform boys, members of the Boone's youth division, play a drumbeat for flag bearers and march onto the raised stage at the head of the arena. There were Hitler salutes being given from the floor as Nazi and American flags passed Boone members and went to the stage. And I venture to claim that if Washington were alive today, he would still be a staunch friend of the Germans, and as he was of Frederick the Great, now of Adolf Hitler. For the would-be American Fuhrer, Fritz Kuhn, tonight was supposed to be pure theater. It was supposed to mark the pinnacle of his success as the country's future fascist leader, sweeping away a tired and failing democracy. It was the chance to put himself on the national, if not the international stage. But as the rally speakers that night began to unveil the true nature of Boone ideology, the deep-seated hatreds contained within it, 26-year-old plumber Isidore Greenbaum began to feel his blood boil. They wanted Greenbaum and his family and his friends and his people dead. They wanted them wiped from the face of the earth and forgotten. Greenbaum wasn't going to have any of this. He told me, if this guy says one more thing, I'm going to jump up there and punch him in the face and and, um, just take him out. He really lost his cool. In our next episode of Star-Spangled Fascism, The Fuhrer and the Plumber Part 2, we'll look at the dramatic moment when Isidore Greenbaum had a rendezvous with destiny by taking one of the era's boldest stands against fascism. (laughs) And how it helped lead to the downfall of a man who saw himself as a future American Hitler. Special thanks to Isidore Greenbaum's grandson, Brett Siciliano, and to Arnie Bernstein, the author of Swastika Nation, Fritz Kuhn and the Rise and Fall of the German-American Boone. This program was edited by Brian Fantinelli, mixed and mastered by Joseph Powers, and executive produced by Brendan Gokel. Be sure to subscribe to the Star Spangled Fascism podcast wherever you get your podcasts, on our YouTube page, and follow us now on social media. If you have a question about the podcast, Email us at questions at starspangledfascismpodcast.com. I'm Bradley W. Hart. Thank you for listening. Thank you.